it's all about God. It, sometimes we substitute things for God, like church and friends and money. But the reality is, when it all comes down to it, it's about your relationship with God. And uh, I hope and pray that you have a solid relationship with God and that becomes your focus because when the bottom drops out of your life, that's what you got. You have God. And when you have God, you have everything, right? Is that true? And so that means that I then am secure and safe and awesome in, right in the hands of God and uh, I don't have to depend upon anything else besides God. So my prayer for us is that we'll get that. We'll understand that it's all about God and it, church is an amazing thing. I am glad you're here. I'm, I'm certainly glad you're here because it'd be lonely without you. But uh, the reality is, is that what I want most for your life is not for you to have a connection to church, but for you to have a connection to the living God. And that is so good. That's so powerful. Father, thank you for this day, and I pray earnestly, God, that you'll just take my words and use them. Uh, Lord, I worship you today, God, personally, thanking you, God, for this, the text that we have before us. And I pray that, God, that you allow us with a, with a gentle heart and with with kind ears to hear what you have to say, Father. And I pray that your spirit will just move us closer to you. Thank you for this day. In Jesus' powerful and awesome name I pray, amen. So today, we're in studying the book of Colossians, and we're continuing today in that, in that book. And we find ourselves in Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 through chapter 4, verse number 1. So I'm going to make some uh, comments before we get started, some preliminary comments. And that is simply this, is that uh, don't throw tomatoes at me. I'm just the messenger. I'm going to tell you today what the Word of God says. What we're going to be talking about is how to have dynamic relationship in every element of our life. There are ways, there are ways in, in relationships that God, want, God wants to really work in a powerful way. So I'm going to just take the Bible and open it up for you and... Uh, if you want to send emails, you're welcome to. That's awesome. I'll just forward them to God because he, he wrote this. And then he can respond back to you personally and kind of straighten your theology out. Amen? Is that a deal? And we're going to have some fun with it. And uh, I hope that you enjoy our time together. But we're going to talk about some tough stuff today in, in relationships. So right off the shoot, the first thing that we're going to talk about is that Paul deals with these three kinds of relationships that we have in our lives. And the first one is the idea of what God wants for us, and that is to have an honoring relationship to God in our marriage. So that's right out of the shoot what he says. And uh, I'm just going to read the text to you. And uh, the tomatoes are in the back. If you want to throw them, I'm a good dodger. But here we go. Colossians chapter 3, verse 18 says, Wives, you lovely things. I added that. It's not actually in the text. <laughs> Wives, submit, yourself, submit to your own husbands as is fitting for those who belong to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. So Paul is writing some, on some very practical issues. And uh, he talks about this S word. The S word is almost a cuss word in the culture that you and I live, Right? And, it, and the reason for that is it's been misused and abused and manipulated. So what I want to show you today is I want to put the concept of submission into its primary context and give us an understanding of what does God mean by that and how does it flow out of our life in a loving, kind, great way. So the word submit 
has become the focus of the feminist movement and it's probably the most hated word among women today. Would you agree with that? I'm just talking to the ladies here. I don't care what the men think right now. So I'm just talking to you ladies, is that the meaning has been grossly distorted, right? Do you get that? The meaning of submission has been grossly distorted. Many wrongs have been done in the name of submission. You're just supposed to submit, right? And so today what I want to do for just a few minutes is that I want to set submission in its proper context. And perhaps the first thing that needs to be said about submission is submission does not cancel equality. So I just soak that in. When you are submissive to something or someone, it doesn't mean that you are less than. That's the first thing that I want you to see because if you can grab a hold of that, then you're just talking about now role and function. Although it is addressed to wives here, it is not a feminine word at all. The word, this word in the Bible is addressed to men as well. In fact, in the book of Ephesians, the Bible says that we're to submit to one another. In, the, in family relationships, you and I are to submit to one another. So it's not a sexist word. So let me see if I can kind of put it in a context of maybe you can understand it. So have, in, you know, I love to go into rural Nevada and you know, every once in a while in rural Nevada, you will find a bridge, you know, a one-way bridge type thing that you can only drive across one car at a time. Ever driven over one of those bridges? They're amazing. And so you'll drive over the bridge and, and there's this sign that says yield. So in other words, if you see an oncoming car, you're supposed to yield to that oncoming car, right? That's the goal. That's, the, that's what the purpose is of that sign. And then when you drive over the, the bridge, if you look backwards or on your way back, you're going to notice the same sign is on the other side of the bridge, right? And it's going to say yield. So what happens when you have two cars that fail to yield? There's a head-on, right? There's a head-on in the middle of the bridge. It's never good. It's never ugly. So God has created an order in culture. And it's so essential for us to understand that. And I want you to understand that it's not about, it is not about equality at all. It is a very powerful thing when you understand it uh, in the context of how the Scripture talks about it. So let's talk about the greatest example of submission in all of the Bible. The greatest example of submission in all of the Bible is when Jesus submits, look at me in the eyes here, when Jesus submits to the Father. That's what he does. Jesus, according to Philippians, according to John 1, is equal to the Father in every way. But he empties, according to Philippians, he empties, empties himself of the right to be regarded as equal to God, takes upon the form of a servant and comes to this world submitting to his Father, saying, I don't do anything outside of the Father's will. Now, when Jesus said those things, he did not mean, he didn't, he didn't have a mean bone in his body. He wasn't resentful. He was not, he was not upset about it. In fact, in fact, I want to suggest to you that the Bible says that Jesus delighted in submitting to the Father. He's the greatest example, equal to the Father and yet delighting in the role that God had given him to submit to his Father's will and to do the work that God has, had called him to do. And no one would ever conceive of the idea that Jesus found reproach in that or found it offensive or found it, I mean, think about this. This is God. <laughs> this is God. And he didn't find it offensive 
when he was called by his father to take on the role of submission to his father. Therefore, to submit to someone does not mean that you, that you have to get offended at that. If submission does not mean inequality, then what does it mean? Literally, it means to arrange, your, to arrange yourself in the proper order. That's what it means. It is totally voluntary action. It's never, it is never to be commanded. It, this is an, there's an order of authority in all of nature. God himself submits to that order. Everything in nature observes it. So the apostle's word to a wife is submit yourself to your own husband, follow him, not of the things that are wrong according to your conscience. In other words, this is not, let me make, be very clear about this, this is not a blind submission. You don't have to do everything your husband says. Don't have to do it. If he's asking you to do something wrong, I'm going to tell you, you don't have to do it. If your conscience is violated, if it's not right and it's not, it is not fitting in the Lord, then the fact is, is that there is no obligation. You are off the hook. And so just understand that submission is a voluntary thing and it is not blind. It is not just me saying, okay, whatever you want. Oh, you want me to, you know, you don't have to do anything evil. And I'm going to tell you, and listen to me, men, I'm going to say this to you a couple times today. You're going to see this in just a minute. If you are loving her the way Christ loves the church, there would never be a question about submission again in your family. Because she would naturally follow a loving leader. That's the order that God has created for us. And again, we may not like it, but it's God's order. And, and the apostle's word to you women is to submit to your, to your husband. And listen to me, uh, men, just, I'm going to give you some really wise counsel here. Uh, this is not going to work well for you if you don't listen to me. Submission is never to be commanded. So don't go home this afternoon and say, Pastor Dan says. <laughs> Pastor Dan says, you're supposed to submit, woman. I'm going to tell you, it's not going to go well for me, and it's not going to go for, well for you for the rest of the afternoon. I'm just going to say, so word of the wise, you never command, you never remind. It's not your job. It's not your role to remind your wife that, you're, that she is supposed to be submissive. That is God's role. And so you, as you understand this, it, it naturally flows in a beautiful thing. Now we come uh, to verse 19. So we're going to dwell in on this verse. Ladies, you're going to say thank you afterwards, I promise you. So verse 19 says, Husbands, love your wives and never, ever, ever, I'm adding a few adjectives here, never, ever treat, your, treat them harshly. So the thing is, is that you are to love your wife. And Ephesians, <laughs> this is good. Ephesians adds something to this. Ephesians, which is a parallel book to the book of Colossians, says... Love her in the same manner that Christ loved the church. So I want you to notice it does not say, it says, husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. Love your wives. It does not say make love. Okay, let's just get that straight. That's not the command here. And all the ladies said, amen. Hey, you know, this is, this is the 11 o'clock service. Come on now. You got to respond a little bit here. We're going to have fun with a very difficult passage. And so here we go. Husbands are here to love your wives. So here are some words that I would associate with what that means. What does it mean that I'm supposed to love my wife in the manner that Christ loves her? Well, first of all, guys, here's the deal Jesus died for the church, He died for your salvation. So you're to lay your life down and you are to, you are to surrender your life. And uh, you are to love her in a way that is sacrificial and giving. And I'm telling you, when, you know, here, here's the reality, is that 
there is really statistically no difference between the divorce level between Christians and non-Christians. Did you know that? It's all about 50%. 50% chance that you're not going to stay married to the person that you said, I love you so much. And the reason for that, I believe, is because we try to live, the Christians try to live in a manner that isn't consistent with what Jesus teaches us to live. So husbands, you are commanded by God. This is not a suggestion. <laughs> this is not saying, hey, I got some advice for you guys. This is a command. And it says, husbands, love your wives. As, and Ephesians says, as Christ loves the church. So I think the first word that I would associate with that word love is the idea that means that I need to honor her. I need to bring honor to her. I need to protect her in a way that I protect her honor. In everything that I do, God has given me this command, I believe, to protect my wife's honor, to value her above golf. <laughs> Did I say that out loud? Sometimes I just think things in my mind and they just come out of my mouth. I don't know. So I'm supposed to value her. I'm supposed to give her respect, guard, and protect her. And uh, this, is, this is what I've discovered about my wife. I'm just going to be honest with you. My wife is so much smarter than me. I'm just telling you, it is true, especially in, in the emotional categories. I mean, I can't tell you how often my wife has saved my bacon by saying, hello, knock, knock. You know, knocks on my forehead, that type of thing. <laughs> Have you thought about this? And, you know, really, come on now. I can't tell you how often she has saved my bacon because she has this emotional intelligence that I seem to miss sometimes. And hence, I'm a preacher. <laughs> That's how it works out. I don't know what happened to that. <laughs> That's God's problem, not mine. I just get up here and say what, you know, what I study in the Bible every day. So here we go. I'm to love my wife, and I am to value her, value her opinion. There's an equality in this relationship. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a I'm lording it over you. It is an equal partnership with different roles and functions. And when I am loving my wife the way Christ wants me to, everything falls into the kind of place that it, it should. And this is something that a husband is to plan for. You know, husbands, this isn't something that you just go, okay, it's Valentine's Day. What do I do next? You know, it's not that. that I mean, husbands, you, ladies, you probably figured this out. Husbands are not great planners when it comes to loving you with the way Christ loved the church. And so this isn't at your anniversary. I mean, all those things are great. But I think this is all year long. This is when I, this is when I rise up in the morning. I'm my, and here's what the Bible tells, us, tells me. You know, honestly, how I treat my wife determines how God responds to me. And I can hinder what God is doing by mistreating or not valuing the treasure that God has given to me. So if you're single here today, let me just simply say this to you, is that if you are a lady, I'm going to tell you, here's the rule of thumb. This is Pastor Dan's rule. Never marry a man that is unworthy to submit to. And I'm telling you, after they say I do, they don't get better. They just don't. I'm just telling you from my personal experience. They get worse. They've already made the con because we're hunters. We've already bagged the game. And now, and now, and now, I'm just, no, come on now. I'm just saying the way it is. Don't, don't, you know. I'm just telling you the way it is. So that's how men think. And so, so we're not great planners and we don't work hard at it. But so if you're single, find somebody who's going to work hard at honoring you. And if they don't do it in the engagement phase, they're not going to do it in the post-marriage phase. Just not going to happen. Post-wedding phase. 
And if you're a single man here today, uh, here's, the, here's what you need to understand. Marriage isn't about sex. Marriage isn't about, you know, just having this beautiful wife. Marriage is about me emptying myself every day and loving somebody who is completely different than me. And that, is, that takes the Holy Spirit's power. So that's, that's what the, the Bible says here. And I think there are three ways, men, uh, that you can love your wife the way Christ loves your wife. And so here we go. Listen to this. This is good stuff. This is worth the price of admission. So number one is uh, represent God to her. If you want to love your wife the way Christ loves her, represent God to her. Lead her spiritually. I found very few women in my experience in, on this, in this journey on this planet, I found very few women who don't admire a man who at least gets in the game and tries to lead them spiritually. I'm telling you, it's the truth. I can't tell you how many wives have said, I wish my husband would just pray with me. Or would, or would just open the Bible with me and tell me what the Bible says or, or do a Bible study together. Even if I'm telling him what it says, at least take the initiative. Lead, lead spiritually. Second, I think, equally important thing is that you need to learn how to delight. If you're going to love your wife the way Christ loves the church, you need to learn the discipline of learning how to delight in her above everything else in life, above your job, above, above your sports, above your play, above everything else you, you do, God has given you a job description, a very specific job description, and I believe that includes learning how to delight, to delight in the person that God has brought into my life. And I, I just think, here's a great homework assignment. I don't know if you've got the courage to do this or not, but here goes. See how, see how brave you are. Go home this afternoon and ask your wife, hey, do you think I delight in you? And just listen. And don't respond. And just figure it out from there. Do you still love me, by the way? Teaching, I'm just teaching in the Bible. The, you know, the 9 o'clock service doesn't love me anymore. So I need a service to love me. I'm just, just, just kind of telling you what the Bible says. The third thing, not only do I represent God to her, and lead her spiritually, but I delight in her. And thirdly, I sacrifice for her. I set aside my agenda, and I, and I live for the agenda of God and for her. And so sacrificing, that's what Jesus did. He set aside his agenda, emptied himself of the right to be regarded as God, went to the cross, came into this world, and died for you. That's what love, that's how God defines love. So I have to learn how to sacrifice so I have to tell you a little cute story here because it's going to make you happy or with me. <laughs> there was this guy that got on an airplane. He, was, he came in. He sat down right next to an older gentleman. And uh, they started talking pre-flight. They started talking, hey, what's going on? You know, just how people do. And the older gentleman said, hey, are you traveling for pleasure or business? And the younger guy says, well, I'm traveling. I, I suppose I'm traveling for pleasure. I'm on my honeymoon. And uh, so the older gentleman goes, well, well, where's your wife? And they said, well, when we booked the flight, when we booked the flight, uh, there was no seats together, so we had to sit, sit separately. And so the older guy said, uh, uh, listen, I'll tell you what, there's time to move. I'll get up, go back, and exchange seats with your wife. And then you can sit with her, the f with her for the rest of the flight. And the younger man made the worst decision of his life, said the worst thing he could ever say. He said, uh, that's okay, I've been with her all week. 
That's never a good move. You know what I mean? That's never a good move. So I need to learn to honor. I need to learn to, I need to, learn to sacrifice. And so that brings us to the third, or the second element of relationships. And here we go. So not only do I need to honor God in my marriage, I need to also honor God in my family. So how do I do that? So verse 20 and 21 tells us, it says, children, always obey your parents for this, is, this pleases the Lord. So most of you have your children in children ministries today. So I'm just gonna say, here's what you need to do when you go home today. You just simply say, Pastor Dan said you're supposed to obey me. <laughs> He's the authority. He's the, just telling us what the Bible says. He says you're supposed to obey me. And so, uh, and so that, that gives me the ability now just to skip over to fathers for a second. So here's what it says to fathers. And I think you can include mothers in this too. So here's what it says to fathers. Fathers, do not aggravate your children or they will become discouraged. That's interesting. So I wanna just, I wanna just talk a little bit about that. I've discovered through, my, through long experience and through a lot of mistakes that there are four things that embitter children eventually. Four things that cause them to really push back and these are particularly harmful for them so I think you need to sit up and take note if you're a parent here or a grandparent. The first thing that you can do to harm your children is ignore them. And what I mean by that is make other things more important than them. Than them. Oh, I got, you know, sorry, I got to work. Or sorry, I got a golf game. Just ignore them. If you want to embitter your children, all you have to do is just not pay attention to them. And it's, it's so easy to do. I mean, if you're just passive, that's what'll happen, right? So if moms and dads, if you don't want to embitter them, you've got to pay attention to their personality, to their, their wants, their likes, their dislikes, all those things. And then the second thing you can do that will destroy them is indulge them. We live in a culture where, you know, we have a hard time saying no to kids, right? Sure, you want to do that? You want to play five sports all at one time? Go for it. That would be awesome. Hello? Oh, you need this, you need that. I'm just saying in the culture that we live, we just indulge children. You know, we, we haven't learned how. We haven't learned how to say, no, you can't do that. That's the wrong decision for you. No, that's not right. And so oftentimes, this is my experience in marriages, there's the good cop and the bad cop. <laughs> Anybody know that? So normally, you know, the good cop, they, they go to the, you know, they, the children play off of this good cop, bad cop, and eventually they go to the person who always says yes, that's the good cop, and they say, mommy said, or daddy said, and then, you know, then they say, but I know, I know, I know you're smarter than that, dad. And they make it hard for us to say no, right? So I'm just saying, if you want to mess up your kids, you indulge them. You give them everything they want, or you insult them, you call them names. I can't tell you how many people that end up in my office who say to me, hey, hey, Pastor Dan, do you know that my dad used to, or my mom used to regularly call me stupid? You're just stupid. Or ignorant, or you just, whatever name it is, if you want to embitter your children, you just use names. God never uses that kind of language with us, and we should with our children, so we shouldn't insult them. And here's the fourth thing 
And I wish we had time to kind of, you know, just delve into all four of these and spend more time with it. But here's a fourth thing that is harmful to children, and that is when you press them too hard, you create too many rules. Because <laughs> I got, I don't know, this is just me. Maybe I'm wrong about this. I believe the goal of parenting is for them to leave. Do I have that wrong? You know, you want them to actually get up and someday, preferably 18 or older, you know, you don't want younger than that, but at some point, you want to give them enough, enough freedom in that process to be able to make good decisions while you have the ability to coach. And when you, are, when you press and you create too many rules and then you are harsh when they break those rules, I'm going to tell you that that probably is a mistake in your life. My daughter and I went through a difficult time when she was, you know, a teenager, and uh, as all parents do, and this is what I discovered, that, that when I would grow angry with her, she would just grow angry back at me. But here's, I learned this from God. Halfway in this journey, this is what I started saying to her that changed the game in her relationship to me. Instead of saying, I'm angry at you, I would look at her and say, that hurts, because she didn't have a box for that. So you want to you embitter your children? Just push them over the edge. Just keep pushing, and uh, in, in the end, I'm just going to tell you, Jesus taught this, but the law doesn't change anything. It's human relationship that does. So those four things. Probably should have taken notes, but you can go back and watch the podcast. Last thing. Oh, time flies when we're having fun. Last thing. Third kind of relationship that I've got to pay attention to is I've got to honor God in my work. So how do I do that? So before I look at the passage, we look at the passage, and uh, I read it to you in just a minute, I need to explain something to you. In the time that Paul wrote this letter, the Roman Empire governed the world, right? It was an evil government, and it enslaved people. And vast majority of Jews were enslaved to the Roman Empire. They were slaves to the Roman Empire. So Paul isn't writing to try to correct that. He's not writing a letter to the, you know, to the Roman Emperor saying, hey, you stop that. He's, got, he's dealing now, how then, as I find myself as a slave, how then do I function in the culture that I'm now living? So having said that, listen to me very carefully. Having said that, we, we shouldn't, you know, we live in a different culture, a different time, and slavery shouldn't ever be a part of our culture. So what I'm going to suggest is these verses are very transferable into the marketplace. So let's just think marketplace. When I read this, think marketplace. So here we go. It says, slaves, and I, this isn't going to be on the screen, so you're actually going to have to listen. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything you do. Try to please them all the time, not just when they are watching you, uh, serve them sincerely because your reverent fear of the Lord. Work willingly at whatever you do and as though you are working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward and that the master you are serving is Christ. But if you do what is wrong, you will, you will, get, uh, you will get paid back for wrong and you, that you have done, for God has no favorites. Masters, you, you must be just and fair to your slaves. Remember that you also have a master in heaven. So as we apply this to the marketplace, what do we draw from that? There are several things. The apostle says, uh, let's first of all talk to employees. 
So if you're an employee, you work for somebody, that's you. That's where you set up and say, okay, this is what Paul's saying to me. So to the employee, says, whatever you do, work, it, work with, with all of your heart. Don't hold back anything. You don't work for your employer. You don't work for Safeway or Walmart or whoever else you're working for. You work for God. As a child of God, you work for God. You don't work for a paycheck. Did I say that out loud? You don't work for a paycheck. The paycheck is just the byproduct. You work for God. And your job description is to lift up and glorify His name. If it is Jesus we are serving, every employee ought to write this down. Listen, if it's Jesus that I'm serving, you ought to write this down and, and never forget it. You ought to put it on your locker, put it in your car, put it wherever you're at, and just say, put this where you're going to read it every day. Whatever I do, whatever I do, I'm doing for Jesus today. I work for Jesus. I don't work for Grace Church. I work for Jesus. Thankfully, Grace Church pays me to work for Jesus. That's awesome. I haven't tell the, told the elders this. I'd probably do it for free because I work for Jesus. I work for Jesus, and that should be your spirit. You work for Jesus, so whatever you do, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, with all your hands, with, you know, with all your strength, all that. Do that. And so then we come to employers. What do we learn about employers? I think there are two key words here that I don't want you to miss that I think are really good. If I'm an employer, that is, I, I have people that report to me, there are two words that they should know me by. One is generous, and the other is just. I should be generous as I can be, and I should be just in how I treat people. That's how I want God to treat me, because I have a Father in heaven. So I want to end with two stories. So my dad came to know Jesus when he was about 78 years old, then got baptized, went to church every week after that, and uh, evidence of the fact that he really didn't have a relationship to Christ. And I can remember, here's what I know about my dad. My dad lived more like a believer than when he was an unbeliever than most believers lived like. So I can remember I was in college, I think 20 years old, and I worked for my dad. My dad was the highest in the chain. He had, you know, he was the head of the company. And so I worked way down here at the bottom of the company, and I had, I had to work on New Year's Eve one, one, one year. And my dad knew that I wanted to go hang with my friends and, you know, have a New Year's Eve party, you know. I wasn't a believer yet. That's what I wanted to do. So my dad, as the manager, had 150 employees that reported to him. My dad, as the manager... Uh, walked in. I was, at the, I was in the plant. There's a tungsten carbide refinery. He walked into the plant, and my dad had his, cover, his, his coveralls on. And I go, Dad, what are you doing here? He said, uh, hey, I know, you wanted, I know you wanted to. I know you wanted to go hang with your friends tonight, so I'm going to take your shift. That's what Jesus would do, right? That's the kind of things that Jesus would do, is that he would serve us in that manner. Let me tell you one more story that I think is just as impactful. So there's a woman who worked for a company in Manhattan. And uh, she had a boss that was a believer. And one day she made, new on the company, but she made a huge mistake, enough to get fired. Should have been fired. This woman should have been fired for what she did. She made, it wasn't just a mistake, it was blatant rebellion and should have been fired. And so her boss 
didn't choose to fire her. In fact, did just the opposite. He took all the heat. He said, no, you know what? It's all my fault. Didn't even name her name. Took the responsibility from the people above him and, uh, and just you know, said, hey, don't do that again to her. But she never got fired and she never was reprimanded by this, her superiors because her immediate boss took the heat. So along the way, after this happened, couple days, she went to him and said, why did you do that? I should have been fired. Why did you do that? And he said, because I'm a Christ follower. And I did for you what Jesus did for me. He took the heat for me. I should have been fired. I should have gone to hell. I should have been punished by God. But Jesus took the heat for me so that I could be set free. That's what I did for you. Pure and simple. And here's what she, the next words out of her mouth was, where do you go to church? I've never seen somebody act that way. And she, he happened to go to Tim Keller's church in Manhattan. And she showed up the next Sunday and she's been there ever since, faithfully serving Jesus, because she saw somebody who actually practiced what Jesus did for her. That's what Jesus did for us. Do you get that? He emptied himself of all of his dignity went to the cross and died and took the heat, took God's heat so that I could be set free. That's the gospel, by the way. That's the good news. That's the message of the gospel. So here's how I want to end our time together. I want us to all stand together. And I just have one final question to ask you. Maybe two. Based on what I just read, based on what I just said, the question for you is how do you treat people? Because there's a lot of people that won't get this. There's a lot of people who will never come through a church door because of how people who name Jesus treat them. We're the only Bible they have. We're the only Jesus they're going to see. So how I treat people matters. It does. How I respond matters. How I set my own rights aside, like Jesus did, matters. So the question that I want to leave you with today is just a simple question. Do people see Jesus in you? Do they see Jesus and how you treat them? That's the only way they can judge. They don't, they don't know by how well you keep your lawn. They know by how you treat them. That's how they know. So my question to you one more time is simply this. How do you, how do you treat Jesus? And my prayer, or other people, my prayer is that it will be just like Jesus would treat them. That's my prayer. Father, thank you for this day. And my, my hope and joy, God, is that you'll take my words and use them in our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen.